0: Welcome to the Social Evolution Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Porcelli. And I'm Max Borders. And we're here to talk about the future of humanity, social evolution, and all that good stuff. I'd love to hear about who you are.
1: I'm sure everybody else would too. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: I am a coach and a consultant. I have a business called Bedrock Culture and Leadership. I work with people everywhere from the soft skills side of things interpersonal communication and how to do that effectively all the way to organizational systems like holacracy and kind of future thinking oriented organizational structures. That shit gets me excited every day.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like your, your organizational focus is really living and breathing this stuff.
0: Yes, totally.
1: Okay. And we'll definitely talk about, uh, organizations, how they are constituted, how they're run all that good stuff in subsequent episodes, perhaps also in this one. Um, but it's, it's really great to be, uh, to be on air as it were, with someone who actually walks the walk.
0: Yeah. It's not always easy, but it is definitely rewarding. How about you, Max? Tell us about you, where you're coming from. What has you interested in this?
1: Well, I come from a little bit more from abstraction land, which you're happy to play in, even though you, you roll your sleeves up and do it. Um, I, I'm I'm a writer and a thinker. Uh I have two books uh that I would love everybody to get as listeners. The Social Singularity, and my latest book is After Collapse.
0: Awesome. These books I can attest, I I, I just could not put down the social singularity when I first got it. it felt like Max was kind of saying stuff that I always wanted to write myself. And After Collapse is a great sequel, and I'm partway through it right now. And if you're interested in thoughts about like where basically civilization could be headed and the pitfalls and a sense of, I would say optimism, even though after collapse sounds like a little hardcore, I like the after part of that title. I think it's a well-chosen title. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But I mean, that's really, that's the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about. We're, we're literally sitting here together talking Uh, because of the first book and I'm so happy about that. We've connected, become great friends and we've decided to have conversations about this stuff all the time because we're nerds.
0: Yep. So then we decided let's just record ourselves having these conversations that we already love having and have you listen in and hopefully it will be interesting and enlightening. Like I, I love talking about this stuff whenever I get the chance and Max is one of my favorite people to talk about it with. So with that, let's get into it. Let's get
1: into it. What is social evolution anyway? I mean, what is this stuff we're going to be talking about?
0: My take is, you know, we as humans are another species of animal on earth and we're in an evolutionary process and we have been, you know, for the entirety of our history, but also our prehistory. And this kind of stretches back into the mists of time. And it's not just we evolve like as individual people, we actually evolve as a collective as a species or as groups and um in the historical period from you know the beginning of civilization whatever 12,000 years ago we evolve in these societies and in these different structures political structures or technological things or economic things you know and that's brought us to here and our premise i think or one of my premises is that the evolutionary dynamic is not it's not done. It's going to continue. And we should expect it to continue and continue within our lifetimes. And just because it's the way we've always done it doesn't mean it's the best way to keep doing it. And there's definitely better and worse ways of doing it. So I think we're talking about this relationship between the kind of underlying sort of deep time evolutionary dynamic and, you know, where we're headed into the future absolutely
1: i mean i have a i have a very similar view on that actually and i actually like to divide the forces that shape humanity let's call them forces uh broadly speaking or dimensions along which humanity gets shaped um i think there are four if anyone has an idea about what another might be i'd love to hear it but the four i really like to focus on are culture which I think are the patterns of thought and behavior in, within groups, social groups. Uh, then there's evolution. You know, we're born with certain genes and there are certain things about ourselves we cannot change despite the culture, despite the environment. But those twin forces are very powerful. Then as human beings, we come up with tools and recipes that we use to improve our lives or improve the lot of the people we love or the people around us, our communities and so on. And that's Technology. Uh, technological tools, of course, are already shaping us. Right now, they have shaped us in the sense that you and I are sitting here having a transcontinental conversation that's being recorded, which would not have been possible a hundred years ago, perhaps. And finally, then there's institutions. And these are the rules of the game in life. These These are the formal and some informal. And this, of course, overlap with all the other areas. But these are the rules by which we have to live sometimes and sometimes choose to live but nevertheless the rules of the game and those are my four forces um for 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 how we evolve as species uh broadly speaking where evolution and emergence are these twin pillars of of change and uh in those four categories so curious uh curious to get your Uh, any contradictions you might have with that? Is there anything wrong there?
0: Well, I'm going to, I'm going to get curious about, you you know, what you mean by it to kind of help me clarify for myself what you're talking about. But I think this is a great framework. I think we just to reiterate, we've got, you know, past, present and future, which is maybe the time dimension, but then we have this kind of like four area dimension. And, you know, one of them I think is simple enough. which is the thing we said I said earlier about we're we're a biological species we have gen, we have genes right we have a certain you might say kind of like our, our range of behaviors is sort of within the parameters of you know like hey we are these organisms right we stand upright you know this about this size and shape and all of all of the implications of that that is just deep evolutionary history these adaptive ways that we um interact with each other you know the that's sort of like the you could call it like an, the animal sociality kind of aspect of it I think that's kind of what you're getting at with that right sure
1: yeah I mean we're a, a species that's evolved to feel to feel jealousy we're evolved to feel uh love uh physical attraction there's all of these other dynamics of part of being a human being that are parameterized by our genes uh, there are limitations to uh, currently to our cognitive abilities you know the smartest person on earth, might have an IQ of, of, you know, 220, but there's never been anyone who with an IQ of 400. But could that change? Who knows?
0: Right. Yeah. And these these are basic things too, like everyday things. Like we we got to eat food, right? We got to sleep. Yeah. Right? Like the, these are sort of constraints on our behavior that, you know, for better or for worse, we're stuck with, at least for the time being. I mean, we can get into transhumanism maybe in another future episode here, but like at the very least, that dimension has to be accounted for. And let's go on to the the second one you said was culture. Mm-hmm. Now, culture is one of these words that so many people mean so many different things by culture, but you said something about just the kind of the patterns of behavior and norms we have with each other, the values we share. I don't know if you said that word, but like, is this, there's a way that I, I started wondering like, how these maybe get a little gray at the edge between each other? Like the difference between something that's an institution versus a culture, right? Like, or like biological versus a culture. What is it that makes it cultural?
1: Well, and there's so many interesting things in all the blurry spots in between. So if you imagine these four as being like Venn diagram circles and they overlap in interesting ways uh-huh. and looking at those overlaps is often really interesting. I mean, something as simple as a a rule that Americans Q2 pretty faithfully from coast to coast. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we have international listeners, uh, I'll be interested, you know, I'd be interested in any comments or or otherwise reflections on other cultures and the way they they do things. But I know that in the United States, we get in a line, we queue up. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're at the grocery store, you know, there's someone standing there, you're supposed to get behind them. And that's just the way things are done. But if you go to Germany, and want to get on a bus. Everybody's trying to get in the bus at the same time, and they're pushing each other out of the way. When I was first in Germany, I was appalled by this because, well, I'm an American, and that's my culture. That is a an that the queuing up thing is a defined rule. So, in that sense, it's an institution. But in another sense, there is a cultural dynamic around it about that has to do with being an American, and it probably comes from um, the the power of of of. British or English culture in particular, where mm, queuing up mm-hmm. is um, is also a cultural phenomenon and an, an institutional rule. so I love exploring these areas of overlap, and I think you're absolutely right they're not they're not fixed categories they're definitely porous and and there's interesting areas of overlap.
0: Let me see if I can get to the heart of the culture thing like what makes it sort of unique or what's at the center of it? rather than kind of these overlapped areas, is it in your mind? Let me just share with you my, my version of it and see if there's congruence here. Like the culture part is it's, it's informal, right? It's informal and it's sort of like soaked up in kind of implicit ways, right? It's almost like early childhood development, right? The mimicry of, you know, what your parents do you know what i'm saying like there there's a way almost like through osmosis it's not even like um maybe this is sort of where it starts to bump up against biological evolution a little bit mm-hmm, too like mm-hmm. but whatever whatever this is the the cultural part is you know it's transmitted primarily through informal relational context with the people in your immediate vicinity Mm-hmm. As you're developing, and whatever this is—customs, or songs, or turns of phrase, or sayings, or social norms—like the queuing thing, it, it might. This is the way I think of culture, kind of at its heart. And I'm kind of curious: does this line up with what you're talking about?
1: I, I, I it does absolutely. Um, I, I generally find with a, an abstraction like culture, it's useful to give examples because examples can often be better than definitions. Sure. Um, So I would have a hard time defining culture. I think a lot of people would, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like jazz. You know it when you hear it (laughs) kind of thing. Um, And, and I guess, I guess for me, you know, uh, to take an example, um, if you've ever met someone from the military, Uh there is a sense of honor and loyalty that's very strong that Tends to be inculcated in service people, mm-hmm. but it's also shores up certain kind of structures or institutions within the military hierarchy, right? Right. So it's important that, um, that if you're going to protect these institutions, that you have this coevolution, coevolutionary culture to shore it up. Um, yes. And we think there are some really strange cultures if we think back into the past. For example the shame of a japanese warrior at at losing a battle and finding himself alive afterwards he might commit seppuku which is ritual disembowelment that leads to suicide Mm -hmm. right that's Mm -hmm. very strange to us culturally but for you know the japanese in the you know 15th 16th centuries this was very common at least among the warrior caste or the warrior Mm -hmm. class of japanese society so understanding the dynamics and interplays between technology, institutions, culture, and our own evolution as a species yeah. is just a massive playground for us to play in.
0: Totally. Totally. Yeah. I think, I think it's clear, clear enough. I, you know, an example that was popping to my mind was, you know, I, I grew up in California and my uh, family on my dad's side is, is the East coast Italians. And we'd go for family vacation young. And I remember Certain things just felt really different. Like, um, you know, like the neighbors would just come over. You know what I mean? Like, hey, come on in. You know what I mean? And it was like, and there was enough dinner. There was like, you want dinner? You sit down. It's like, oh, we're just so everyone's just cooking sort of an excess, and you never know if you're you're gonna go over there or they're gonna come over here. You know, and and they grab your face and they kiss you on the cheek. And I'm like, well, this is definitely we're not talking about technology, right? And we're not talking about like a law or a social institution here, like in a formal sense. Right. We're not talking right. about biology either because we're all humans, right? There's like, there's a sort of an interesting thing where like geographically, even within the same country, it's kind of like, oh, this feels a little different to me. And it, you know, anyone who's traveled a different culture or maybe moved across the country or whatever, they, they kind of get a a sense of what we're talking about. These are these just kind of this bundle of formal and informal sort of rules and ways of doing things that could easily be one way or another way. Right. But this is part of what shapes us going forward as a society.
1: Well, and we have these cultural norms. Right. And now that we got a better idea about what we say when we mean culture, and I think I'm hoping we do, at least I think you and I have woven a shared reality. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully we have with the listeners. But then all of a sudden something profound happens and a technological innovation drops in the middle of some cultural Uh, culturally accepted state of affairs, Mm -hmm. which are very important to respect. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes innovation comes in and goes, wham. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. The birth control pill drops in 1960. What then? Everything changes. For example, we see women in the workforce like never before. And this was, of course, an echo of of women in the workforce during the time when all the men were off in World War II but when the men came back they sort of sort of you know exercised a, a sort of a, pa- a patriarchal sensibility that had they had inherited from the past and muted the aspirations of women to remain in the workforce and we got the 1950s which was you know Betty Crocker in her in her in her high heels making lovely casseroles in the kitchen right and then of course men going off to work and earning the bread and coming home and and all that good stuff 1960 hits and all of a sudden women are able to control their reproductive health like never before and so are not as dependent on men in certain ways completely changes the dynamic into the 70s mm-hmm. we get the women's libers movement as the men called it but as the women called it you know the early days of feminism and wow what a profound transformation but a lot of people don't connect it with a technological change and that's really the important thing there of course there were other other factors that brought that about but the birth control pill was certainly a
0: big one totally yeah and i think this that's a really great example of an interaction and you know like there's definitely a lot more that could be said about that example in specific but to generalize it more there's like other sorts of examples like how the printing press changed Europe and the spread of ideas at that time, or uh, how the invention of antibiotics or vaccines really changed the ways that uh, disease spread through populations and actually, you know, really affected what we now call public health, you know, these these kinds of ideas, or what the internet is still doing to our minds and our brains kind of collectively in the ways that we interact and communicate, I think sometimes the, you know, the, it's not like a simple cause and effect relationship, right? Like the entirety of, of history, innovation, like you said, these dimensions, institutions, and the previous technologies that we've created lead us to create further technologies. And sometimes we don't totally grasp the implications of that you know in a whole bunch of areas sometimes are are sort of surprising to us
1: well and you know what you just figured out number 5 and the one i didn't list was uh, this fifth major force that shapes humanity oh yeah obviously is nature mother nature the world and reality around us you know sure. when you mention um when you mentioned antibiotics that was a response to a natural phenomenon that we'd finally figured out and of course we can't neglect what nature does to us hell we're talking still at the tail end of but in the middle of a pandemic we're still in a pandemic and Mm -hmm. the world around us our culture our technology our institutions all have changed by virtue of the fact that we're living in a pandemic right now Mm -hmm. so adding nature to the
0: list this is like Forces of nature, acts of God, the weather, the climate, right. an asteroid that could hit us. Exactly. Like these things that are not really fundamentally under our control. I mean, in a way, some of it's evolutionary, right? If we talk about, you know, infectious agents as sort of evolutionary, or like predatory animals as as evolutionary, but it's it's not the evolutionary of our species. It's really more of a the evolution of the ecology around us. Right, like how, how we interact with the greater forces of nature. So, yeah, I mean, I could, I could see that as a a distinct fifth thing, or, or if you want to blob the first one together, you can just call it biology or something. I don't know. Maybe I like it. It's good. Right
1: on. Have you ever heard the story of a guy named, uh, Semmelweis? It was a Hungarian physician, uh, who was basically. He was he was working in a hospital in Vienna back in the middle 1800s. Uh-huh. You ever heard of the story about this guy? Tell me more. I think maybe. Well, so I, I want to compare and contrast two different uh, two different ideas to hopefully come to an interesting synthesis. So Semmelweis was this doctor who who basically um, some of the doctors were using corpses to teach uh, young interns intern doctors how to. Uh, Their craft, and they they didn't want them to operate or otherwise treat live people yet, because they're young. So they would go get these corpses, handle the corpses, Mm -hmm. um, and part of that required sticking your hands into the bodies of of these cadavers. Well, some of the what Semmelweis noticed was that the people who were working with cadavers, he started to note the people who were working with uh, patients and live patients mind you not the dead ones working with live patients were also the people who were working with the cadavers showed a high incidence of a higher incidence of the the patients dying of what's called childbed fever and they were basically bringing bacteria which we know today because we have a sophisticated understanding of germ theory Mm -hmm. but they would go to the Semmelweis noticed that people who handled the cadavers were also destroy We're also making patients sick. Yes. So what he did was he encouraged everybody to use this this uh, su- substance, which we know today is, I think, uh, just chlorine. And they washed their hands in chlorine water, mm. and they were able. And he started saving patients left and right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the medical establishment was so entrenched in its groupthink
2: mm-hmm.
1: that it absolutely that that they basically. Made said vice was a joke hmm. that um, that this wasn't medicine, and they carried on with their ways for many, many more years. And he was essentially ostracized from the medical community and ended up dying of sepsis in, in prison somewhere. And I don't remember why. Wow! But the interesting thing is, he was right; the medical community was wrong, and they were suffering under a kind of cultural groupthink.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now contrast this story with the Jews, the ancient Jews. Under Mosaic Law, where before every meal you wash your hands, and this was considered a sacred rite. It wasn't considered okay. Get rid of the germs. It was considered a rite that would be a way to honor God. You know, God is blessing your food, or God is providing your food uh, through His um, through His power, His grace, whatever you want, whatever Jews call it. I don't want to mix in the Christian language too much, but. <laughs> You get the you get the idea. Mosaic yeah. law was about these these rituals and rites, which you might call both culture and institutions. And they were spared for so many of the diseases and plagues that their neighbors weren't spared from. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that contrast. On the one hand, you have a really highly developed culture of handwashing that worked for the Jews and allowed them to survive and thrive uh, despite persecution from all their neighbors. And then you had hospitals dying and Semmelweis had done, had done really good social science to figure it out and could not overcome the barriers. That is a great example, I think, of the power of culture Mm -hmm. both ways.
0: Fascinating. Yes. Yeah. There's something about culture that it wants to in a sense, preserve itself and replicate itself into the future. You know, this is, this is a little bit of borrowing the ideas of Dawkins and and the meme and memetics and whatever you think of that idea, like this broader concept that there is an evolutionary dynamic in the cultural dimension is I think true, you know, in, in a way, these things that get handed down for as long as they get handed down for work right? Like that's sort of, it's almost like a, a survivorship thing. It's literally just like survival in the biological sense of evolution, right? The, the customs that, that make it oftentimes we don't, um, we don't even know where they came from, but they have sort of built in frameworks like religion and tradition or whatever that help them continue down into the future. And uh, they have a certain power you know, whether, the, whether the culture is like perpetuating something that's just really outdated, like in the case of the medical establishment, thinking that symbol vice is a quack or <laughs> the Jews perpetuating this idea of washing your hands before eating is a good idea. Right. And both pre-exist the kind of scientific knowledge, the germ theory of disease, even being a thing. Right. Right. But they're both related to that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, and it, and, you know, it leads me to ask, oh. Are you going to let, are are we going to be allowed on this show to talk about politics and ideology in the context of all this?
0: (laughs) This is a great question. There's a part of me that I think inevitably, you know, we, we will talk about that. Uh, But my hope is that we, we talk about it at least one layer abstracted away from whatever you want, like the, the, whatever the, politics de jour is and the polarization de jour and like look at it more kind of in the abstract because you know this is maybe a good bridge to institutions but i want to check if you wanted to say something about that but like the politics is more in that institutional dimension that you're talking about right policy right like power like how power is structured and right distributed in a more formal way exactly and I think that's yeah
1: yeah. Well, and one of the things that's so interesting about you is you come from the integral background. And if for those who don't understand integral thinking, it's more or less, uh, well, it's a, it's a whole lot of ideas together. But one of the sort of foundational ideas around integral theory is the idea, as the name would suggest, of integration. Mm-hmm. So instead of seeing different uh, wisdom traditions, different worldviews, different ideologies, or different political views, as being fundamentally at odds, and a tribe you have to choose and be on their team, as if it were Duke or Carolina, go Tar Heels. <laughs> um, we have to the integral theory. Integral theory would say, let's see what w- healthy wisdom and knowledge each of these traditions provides, and and try to integrate it into our conceptual scheme to the extent possible, because it probably represents. Some larger, more multifaceted truth that we're not fully aware of aware of without that ability to synthesize and look across traditions and ideologies for the, their wisdom value mm-hmm. and this is a really important point, I think um in general, but also some of the things that we're going to explore on the show. What brought that to mind was the idea that conservatism as a kind of doctrine or as a kind of way of looking at the world really does respect. Uh, could be healthy in the case of the Jews and unhealthy in the case of Semmelweis, right? So yes. tradition mm-hmm. is something that you honor in, in the in conservative teaching and conservative doctrine because yes. you don't know what you're going to fuck up if you try to change too fast, right? Exactly. If you stop washing your hands because somebody comes along with their liberal ideas And tells the Jews, okay, you don't have to wash your hands anymore because we've got a better way of doing it, which is doing the dance. Well, all of a sudden, people are doing the dance and they're dropping like flies because they're ingesting bacteria and they're getting sick and dying. Yep. So, likewise, though, the tradition of the medical establishment and Semmelweis ran contrary to the health of, of the people of Vienna. And that's an interesting counterpoint to this. So we want to try to find the healthy and unhealthy as- aspects of any kind of doc- cultural phenomenon, doctrine, or whatever. And okay, you said, let's get to institutions. I'm curious as to how you view the idea of institutions, because you, as you said, and I agree, there's a formalized aspect to institutions or rules.
0: Yeah. So this is this is interesting. So institutions, I think, I think there's sort of two senses of the word that are useful to kind of parse out here. Like if you said like the institution of marriage, it really is like a formalized custom. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of more in the cultural dimension or right on that borderland between culture and institution in your model Mm -hmm, here mm -hmm. where it's, it's customary, but it's a very formal and ritualized custom. And there is some amount of like, you know, in our modern world uh kind of state recognition of that and a sort of a set of I might say like default law or policy that kind of gets overlaid across that marital status um but then there's like the idea of formal institutions which are things like actual states or the IRS <laughs> or right the uh the WHO right these Organizations that, you know, the Federal Reserve—they they sort of carry out some portion of our civilization, social world. Yeah, they're a functional like aspect it, it, of yes.
1: how we are, how we parameterize our behavior.
0: Yeah, so that's institution in the kind of formal organization sense, like there's right. an actual. Entity entity. is the Mm -hmm. institution. And people
1: use that word interchangeably, institution and entity, um, especially if it's well established. And I wanna I really want to 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 zoom in on one feature. And this this comes from the Nobel laureate Douglas North, who speaks Mm -hmm. of institutions in new institutional economics and ask the question, what are the rules of the game? Mm -hmm. And of course the rules of the game could be enforced by any number of uh, institutional entities, but more or less there's gonna be cost to disobeying the rules Mm -hmm. and there are gonna be benefits to obeying the rules. And that creates all kinds of interesting human dynamics because Mm -hmm. there's a point beyond which it's very difficult to go or more costly to go with respect to the rules, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad, but that's the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about.
0: So along these lines, tell me a little bit about, you know, this, the role of institutions in this evolutionary framework that we're talking about, right? This is the social evolution podcast. And we're not just talking about these things as fixed things. We're talking about them within this kind of time her access, right? Like past, present, and future, right? Like where it, how do we get here? And then where are we going? And how much do we want to preserve, like conserve? Like, or how much do we want to change and like update or upgrade? And like, what what's the role that you see institutions playing in the evolutionary dynamic and the interplay with these other, It's you it's know, f- four dimensions? It's
1: probably, uh, for in my mind, and in terms of my interest, the strongest and most powerful most salient when we talk about the future um that in mm-hmm. technology so institutional rules and technological tools are going to be front and center on this podcast i can go ahead and say that with with confidence so um it's not to say that we won't talk about evolutionary phenomena i love daniel dennett i love the idea that uh that there's somehow that there's somehow we're programmed to find babies cute but cuteness doesn't inhere in the world. It is a evolutionary programming. I love the idea yeah. that nature has all these powerful forces that sometimes cause us to have to change. But I'm really interested in the institutional substrate and the technological substrate and how these are marrying uh with one another these days. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a quick example and then I want to get your reaction to this because I think I think you think along similar lines, but I I I want to be sure. So the institution of There's this institution that's shored up pretty mightily by this by this entity called the Federal Reserve, which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And the Federal Reserve really, really governs in many respects the currency we use here in the United States, which is the the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is a powerful force around the world. It's the world's reserve currency currently, and it really doesn't have very many competitors. Mm -hmm. When you think about an institutional rule like the the needing to use the dollar to pay for things in the United States that is that has not really been disrupted over the last 100 years or more mm-hmm. of course in the early days of the republic and, of, and with the Civil War there were some you know there was some you know, c- competition with the Confederate dollar and this and that but more or less we've been living under a dollar regime and with We're living with inflation because the the uh, intermarriage of of the state of the government and the Federal Reserve has made this kind of unholy alliance that locks us in to using the dollar and being at the whim of other phenomena like inflation or um, uh, the the interest rate. Now, Uh on about two thousand nine, this guy or guys or women and men, we don't know who, who they are, but, uh, this person named Satoshi Nakamoto comes along and decides to change the tools in order to change the rules. Yep. Okay. We had, we use this, the saying a lot and listeners hopefully will appreciate it, which we've cribbed from somebody close, somebody close to, uh, Marshall McLuhan ascribed the saying to Marshall McLuhan, the great Canadian philosopher. And uh, it goes like this. We shape our tools and then our tools shape us. And then, of course, you and I have a corollary that we call we shape our rules and then our rules shape us. And when you combine technology that makes rules Mm -hmm. like Bitcoin and the and the blockchain, all of a sudden you have a game changer. Mm -hmm. This is something that is uh, continued to almost like a universal acid eat through um, it has its fits and starts, it has its ups and downs, but Bitcoin has continued as so of crypto crypt- cryptocurrencies to survive amid the regime, this prior regime that is the federal reserve. Yeah. And so it's interesting and we have to wonder where is this in- going to end up? What is it going to have to do? What is the old order going to have to do to preserve itself? What is the new order going to have to do to, f- to emerge and flourish? Very interesting stuff.
0: Yeah. I agree. So, uh, you know, on a couple of points here, I want to just echo some things you said. Um, one is, you know, we could talk about biology and the environment, ecology, some of the time, uh, but we're, we're, our center of gravity is going to be really in this dimensions that we, the human world, right. That we have more control over in a way, which is culture, technology, and institutions in your model, right? Like those three out of the five, if we're working with five now. yeah. So I I would agree. And the the center of gravity of our conversations will be there just by virtue of the fact that we have more ability to influence that through conversations like this or through innovations like Bitcoin. And then to kind of go to this idea of the money, currency, the Federal Reserve, the dollar, Bitcoin, I think- These are really elucidating some of the inner relationships between these dimensions that you said. So you know, money is an ancient technology. It's been around for thousands and thousands of years in one form or another. And you could say that that kind of emerged out of cultural norms at the time around trade and exchange and trying to account for trade and exchange on a on a common platform or a common method of accounting or something like this. You know. And then the creation of institutions like a bank or then a central bank, right? Or then a global reserve currency out of, right? These things were sort of formal institutional expressions of kind of an underlying social technology or an informal institution, you might say, of, of like money. Like it's not as though we're going to free ourselves of, currency of some kind right this is some kind of method like i said earlier like of, of accounting for things a, a social signaling method of, of accounting for coordinating our efforts across huge populations mm-hmm. so in the sense that whether i think just to get more neutral about politics which is my tendency is like i don't know if it's going to be bitcoin or something else right like and i can sort of see you know, the, the benefits of something like the federal reserve and kind of the issues around it. Okay, cool. But whatever is to come in the future, it needs to at least succeed at the bare minimum, just as well as the previous system, right? If, if it's going to evolve, let's say it is a Bitcoin future, well, whatever Bitcoin does, it has to do something just as well as the dollar, as the global reserve currency does it in terms of providing a common method of accounting across global marketplaces. You see what I'm saying? Like, and maybe we'll do other things that will make it better than something like the federal reserve and the dollar reserve currency system. And, you know, hopefully we don't suddenly switch to something that has some unintended consequences and it makes everything worse. Right. But like, I don't know, the, the, this is an interesting relationship between, you know, the, the custom of trade, the informal institution of money, the formal institution of banks, right? Like, so I, it kind of actually this, it's, it almost illustrates like this idea that um, what we're talking about in, in terms of social evolution actually requires sometimes a coordinated move forward across the these multiple dimensions that you've picked out, especially these three. Yeah.
1: Well I will give you a good example of that. I think I think this is a good example. Um it has parallels with the GameStop stuff that happened recently. But um uh-huh. but I, I call it let's call it hodl co- culture. You you've heard of the expression okay. hodl, right? Yeah. It's uh yeah. it's meant to this guy was to, uh, on Twitter and um was drunk and he's like I'm just going to hold And he misspelled hold is huddle and that got interpreted as an acronym, hold on for dear life. But that's (laughs) essentially what it means is, is, uh, people say hashtag huddle Mm -hmm. and it, it, it is really about keeping your crypto no matter what. And it, Mm -hmm. and it's basically a commitment to the idea of Bitcoin or the idea of cryptocurrency Mm -hmm. rather than some purported intersubjective matrix of value because the intersubjective matrix of value is bound up in culture for Bitcoiners and cryptocurrency enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. You hold on to it in order to never allow, um, never allow the, the old order to, 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 su- for people to succumb to the exigencies of the old order, including the regulatory, uh, regulatory mm-hmm authorities or what you like, because it is a form of protest yeah. to that old order, Bitcoin is. Mm-hmm. So is cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, so is blockchain, and we can talk about distributed ledgers in another episode. But the the idea of hodl culture is really different from the question uh, in the way that most people would view a stock, which is how much do I think this is worth? How much do i think other people think this is worth Mm -hmm. uh which is really the the the, what we're interested in when people are buying and selling stocks it is also the the question that is involved in talking about the value of this network called the bitcoin network Mm -hmm. to use Mm -hmm. the the big the big dog as the the main example um Mm -hmm. but that whole culture is baked into it and is not separable from it, and I think we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. That is because Bitcoiners are just as much revolutionaries as investors. And my hope is that as more and more people get into cryptocurrencies and get into blockchain, they don't get caught up in too many distractions that create bubbles. Like I'm worried NFTs are going to become, um, mm-hmm. but rather that they are still committed to a sense of mission, which is the subversive aspects of cryptocurrencies.
0: There's so much in what you're saying here. And, um, you know, in a way I'm reminded a little bit of our conversations around like um, the similarities and the differences between your two books, The Social Singularity and After Collapse. And, you know, in The Social Singularity, there was a lot of emphasis on the tools, right? The system, the technology. yes. And, um, and of course it kind of bled into this idea. I mean, that's where I first heard that quote we shape our rules and our rules shape us is like, oh yeah, that's, that's great. Like in the social singularity, but in after collapse, I think you're talking a little bit more about this interplay between something softer or maybe more amorphous, yeah. like culture. Absol- and absolutely. The system.
1: That, that book is almost written because I felt unsatisfied having finished the social singularity that I'd focused too heavily on rules and tools
2: mm-hmm. and
1: neglected culture. Specifically um, a sense of of moral spheres. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to go too much into that, but just just to just to say thank you for seeing that, because that is one of the biggest through lines of the book. It's subtle, mm-hmm. you know, purportedly it's talking about how we're breaking down on various dimensions of society, and we're probably going to have a financial collapse soon. Mm -hmm. Um, What do we do afterwards? But one of the biggest things I say that we need to do beforehand, if possible, but certainly afterwards, is reorient ourselves around basic uh, mores, or or even more importantly than mores, a deep sense of uh, moral practice. You know one of the things i think you and i both agree that we we call ourselves broadly cosmopolitan liberals sure and liberal liberalism as a doctrine really focuses in many ways on on rules mm-hmm. and i do too and i've always tended to be that way it's like you know uh, what what is going to be the foundations of the lo- larger political order in terms of the laws you write and I think that's important, but I think that, that as I'm growing older and I'm raising kids and the importance of morality with kids, but also I've come in contact with some of the wisdom traditions, the Vedic traditions, for example, uh, the yogis, the Buddhists, and so on. And I'm coming to see that liberalism is kind of a bloodless rule-oriented doctrine. It's kind of cold.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: what ne- what is needed is this is this re-embrace of moral practice even the ancient virtues uh come to mind if you Mm -hmm. from your you know your parent your family's catholic tradition would honor the the virtues probably Mm -hmm. Um, but also in in judaism you know my my wife uh, and baby daughter are jewish Mm -hmm. so i'm learning a lot about judaism and those uh the the moral rules of judaism uh, and thinking of morals as active practice yeah not as passive recitation or as being like rules yeah as more this is something i need to do every day yeah just like learning karate or practicing yoga or or becoming a better singer or whatever it's like i've got to practice being good every day yeah i never thought i'd hear myself talk like that and yet here we are right (laughs) like Practicing,
2: yeah,
1: practicing. Uh, and I have five spheres that I enumerate in the book, but um, but I encourage folks to read that, um, to get a better idea about it. But to stay at this level of the conversation, yes, uh, that cultural dimension, moral cultural dimension is so vital to how we evolve.
0: Yes. So I want to, I want to throw some ideas of my own in here that like support this and, and kind of start to get into like how these things interconnect because we jumped off into this when you were talking about huddle culture, right? Mm -hmm. And like, it's not just some expression of an economic idea. It's just an expression of a revolutionary idea or like a, like a social change idea. And, you know, social change often, if not always taps into something of like, this is ethical or good, right? A values-based argument, right? In more of a philosophical domain. Like, like the idea of progress is often argued from from the point of view of ethics and morality. Mm-hmm. And um what whatever it is that we're doing in the social dimension, there's some amount of negotiating what I call shared reality, which is uh, you know, something you you quoted me in your book on, which I was happy about. But you know, this idea that like we are exchanging tokens of communication in order for us to see, and to understand our you know where we have overlap in terms of our beliefs and ideas about the world and like this in a way transcends across these three spheres of technology culture and institutions in some in some way right like the the belief that if you're going to talk about the dollar collapsing or something rising to take its place it's not just like a rational argument although that is often part of it, like around economic value, right? But there's also a sense of like, like a a moral argument or being a stand for something. Or if you're like, you know, the American revolutionaries, like there's, there was a lot of arguing for the American revolution that was taking place by people like Benjamin Franklin in the newspapers. And in these, you know, like, it's like, it's like, we got to shift. We're not just shifting the external institution directly, but these things kind of have to move in coordination, right? And, and in order for them to move in coordination, roughly speaking, you know, there's, there's an amount of like, I think about as like, is like, we're aggregating or cultivating belief, like a shared reality about what is possible, right? Like, yes, like that we can create a thing the American colony is independent of the British rule and we can't like, right? or whatever it is, right? Like, And there's some amount of this conversation that's going on in today's culture here in America, especially, but I think worldwide amongst modern people in the aftermath of the invention of the internet, really. I mean, we can talk a little bit more about where that's come from, but that conversation is very rich right now. And like, there are, I think, different, you know... Conversations, whether it's like you know Game B or, or or Glenn Wiles Radical Markets, or you know, what does a post-Westphalian nation state look like? Or can we detach the idea of currencies from central banks? Like these are this is a very interesting environment to be having this kind of conversations. And like whatever the change is going to be, like any social movement, there's going to be there's going to have to be some amount of I guess it's solidarity is the is the word for it, right? Like. Yeah enough brains inside people who are like vibing on the same frequency about like, this is a worthy thing. Right. Cause it's like, I, if it's just in my own imagination, right. I'm living in a fantasy world or I'm a sci-fi author, right. Or something, right. Or, or I'm a crazy person. Right. But if, if suddenly we're like weaving shared reality about this new possibility and making arguments, not just for, for the new structure or the technology, but we're making an argument that touches all the basis of like Val shared values, these things then drive forward together. And it seems like we're just on the cusp of this, or maybe in the middle of this evolutionary moment together. It's it I'm,
1: I'm reminded of, um, Deirdre
0: McCloskey's
1: term, sweet talk. It's, it's, it's marketing too. It's, Hey, sure. what do you think about this idea? I mean, so when you haven't woven shared reality yet, you've got to market it, and you've got to engage in the in memetics, sometimes mimetic mm-hmm. warfare, and uh, mm-hmm. that. So building culture around some proposed idea of the future, uh, as you put it, um, you use the term solidarity, which is perfect. I was thinking about when you when you. Use the term um, when I was thinking about intersubjective agreement, which is a yes. sort of a Richard Rorty kind of phrase. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love Richard Rorty. He's a he's um, a philosopher from the twentieth century who died on about year two thousand or so. In any case, he's got this uh, idea called solidarity, which is really intersubjective agreement about shared reality. I love the way you you put it as being woven. Yeah, and yet there are toxic and unhealthy versions of weaving shared reality because if you think of it as being intersubjective but it doesn't have any touch point with the world with reality with actual reality with the way other people think and feel you can start to live in a bubble or a universe that uh, an unhealthy universe and i'm uh, i'm thinking for example the anti-racism trope or tribe that's going around right now of course there's a healthy civil rights notion of civil rights and equality Mm -hmm. that we want to preserve right if you're into spiral dynamics or integral theory that's a healthy aspects of green meme but there's also a very unhealthy and toxic almost Mm -hmm. neo-segregationist aspect to this anti-racism stuff that mirrors racism almost completely and uh, frankly um that that scares me because now we're engaging in memetic warfare and it's almost as if yeah you know when you have the qanon folks on the one side and the and the so, sort of social justice divorced divorced from reality crowd on the other neither of them is is fully in touch with the real world whether that be statistics about what humans actually do think and feel mm-hmm. Or whether that's uh, you know just the 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 fact that no you can't actually uh, you know uh, drink bleach to cure your your COVID or whatever the hell thing that they've got going on in, in uh, QAnon land. Right. So yeah. not I don't want to I don't I don't want to piss on anybody's tribe. I just want to <laughs> say that what's important about weaving shared reality is it ha- have contact with with actual reality a mind independent reality that ain't you and ain't your subjectivity yes. that's a hard thing to do and a hard thing to to achieve yeah. particularly in this day and age when everything we do is mediated by screens
0: yep totally I, I love what you're saying i mean you step on a couple of hot button things and i'm going to try to just gloss over them and you you could choose whichever one you want as as an example but i think you're you are like my favorite one to pick on is like flat earthers because there's like, right. you know they're easy easy to make fun of, but yeah you c- you can create a kind of shared reality with a group. You know, cults do this oftentimes. Or wait, wait, it's really it's, fringe. It's conspiracy. fun to make
1: fun of the round earthers, right? <laughs>
0: hey, wait a minute. Wait hey, a minute.
1: Fuck you, poor child. Now go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
0: Oh, that's funny. Um the, the more important principle I think here is, as you said, like there is, well, there's two things. Like one is, is recognizing this is a little bit of a truth of uh, the postmodernist ideas around a like, gum, what do they call it? Like truth production, something like this, this is one of these kind of terms where it's like, what are the, so, you know, sociologists like this too, like, especially you know, any kind of 20th century philosopher or theorist that kind of focus more on the social dimension rather than the individual dimension. Like Habermas comes to mind. He's one of my favorite ones, but he's definitely not a postmodernist himself. But the ideas that they share is like, what let's focus on the norms, the institutions and the processes You you could even call them like discourse norms. That's one that I, that I really resonate with like that that are, help us in terms of weaving the shared reality together, Mm -hmm. better or worse. Right. And you can have certain kinds of things. If I, you know, there's a, there's a whole kind of fad almost of, of cult, you know, or ex cult member documentaries, you know, people like leaving cults and such. And they, they talk about, you can, you can sort of see these really tight set of like values and ways of discourse that get people really, really like into each other and into what they're up to, but further and further from the larger civilizational shared reality. Yes. Right. And then you have this kind of, at least the ideal of science is like, this is a, a process where, you know, maybe the classic view of science was like, we're just testing this versus reality. And any person can like, you know, test it for themselves, right? Like as an individual, like almost these heroic individuals like Galileo or something. But I think the 20th century version of science has really recognized the social dimension of the scientific process. And me working uh, as an engineer in an earlier part of my career recognized like, man, nobody, even a simple thing, like a a printer, like I worked at Hewlett-Packard, we made printers. This thing is so complicated. Nobody understands how it works. Just a printer right like and there's like a there's definitely a social dimension to what we're doing that is like helping that function carry out so whatever kind of like generalize this all the way it's not just the technological innovation right it's it's also the construct around it the structure the process Of the way that we communicate that creates new shared realities. And in a way, you know, you can, we could talk about rocks and gravity and things that are like hard objective reality. But a lot of what you and I are talking about in terms of institutions and culture, especially, these are largely, if not mostly, constructed out of something more ephemeral. It's actually constructed out of shared belief, yeah, right? Like the the currency has a value and this is very much people. something people are grappling with in the Bitcoin world. The post cryptocurrency world is like, wait, this has value because we say it has value. And like, this is not a new idea. Economists have talked about subjective theory of value as one way of construing value, but like it's really in, it's like, wait a minute. Okay. I guess this is just so a symbol of an aggregated Set of what do you uh intersubjective reality or yeah. shared reality or solidarity? There's like actually a solidness to this thing in this weird dimension that is not exactly physical, it's social. And whether it's healthy or
1: unhealthy, frequently you cannot penetrate it, you might as well be trying to punch a steel beam. So, shared reality that is constructed by social forces is strong as hell it has its own uh tensegrity yes right so um i i and even it can even make us better people relative to our environment or worse people re- relative to our environment um I, I, there's a there's an old story of of east and west germany um that where there's a there's an article a great article uh, called lying Commies" in the economist right where they did a study a, a study of, a, it's almost, it's a strange because they, they had these people play a game, but the study was about how people played the game. And the West Germans and the East Germans basically in a certain age range grew up in two different cultures. They were neighbors. They were, from the standpoint of their genetic stock, if you like, they were very similar. Mm-hmm. They were German dudes or German men and women. But the ones who grew up in the East behaved very differently in the game than the ones who grew up in the west mm-hmm. the ones who grew up in the west had a uh, you know more or less capitalist culture of repeated repeated exche- uh, production and exchange so you know if you want to exchange with someone you you need to establish a relationship of trust if you want to establish a relationship of trust you don't lie cheat and steal right right but if you grow up in the bureaucratic matrix that is what uh east germany you essentially were inculcated by the incentives of the system to be a liar and a cheater and do anything you could to get ahead because to get behind in that system was death right or was misery yeah um and and in any kind of backbiting bureaucracy we see that kind of behavior you know because it's it's very zero sum and how you get to the top if i'm at this middle stratum i have to have gotten there before someone else who started at the same time or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, in situations where there is exchange, it's it's less formalized force and more more uh, choice and voluntary interaction. You have to establish trusting relationships, right. and that contrast is so profound that it actually shaped the the moral sensibilities of the people within those institutional matrices. Crazy stuff. But it does yep. it to us every day, and I and so one of the things that I've been harping on about lately and talking about morality is that basically Americans are losing losing their religion as it were mm. when it comes to being good people, for example, being compassionate people. Mm-hmm. We've lived in the welfare state so long we don't know how to engage in mutual aid anymore we We are less charitable,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Uh, as a fa- because we're so used to seeing politics as moral action, right? But mm-hmm. to to be for the poor is to go and vote for those who are going to, you know, do something for the poor as politicians. Right, is a very different thing from actually engaging in a, in, in an act of compassion that would help the poor, or or engaging in some kind of organization organization that helps improve civil society um yep. and I'm starting to see Americans along many different dimensions integrity uh compassion uh harm basic physical violence other kinds of stuff that this is starting to get worse and worse
0: yep yeah i mean you're i I would agree about the symptoms there's a little bit of the cause that you uh i think kind of you betrayed a little bit of your bias in there. I mean, some people basically say it's, it's actually caused by, you know, the, the worst aspects of capitalism and the, True. and the incentives that that creates, you know, yeah. like, I think it's a little, I think it's, it's a little bit of both. Oh, I, I I acknowledge that it's yeah. both.
1: In fact, yeah. it's, it's like, if you have certain aspects of that are taken of society that are of the moral universe that are taken out of society and taken to the political, yeah. but the rest, but the rest of your actions belong to uh, voluntary exchange and market in the either the marketplace or the moral, the social cultural sphere. Yeah, if you take them out of those spheres, then yes, the capitalism stuff, the greed can exacerbate the fact. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's almost like the welfare state is the worst possible combination. Sure. Because you just you have greedy people, selfish people taking selfies and and trying to keep up with the joneses all while going saying we need to vote for more help for poor people rather than actually doing anything about it. Yeah. So it's 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 nuts and, and it makes it, it makes Americans look really bad, I think.
0: Yeah. So, I mean this I think is a potentially another bookmark for future topics. I mean there's a way I kind of I want to start moving us to a conclusion here together, but like I think a lot of what we've talked about is maybe previews. For future conversations, right? Maybe we could take one aspect that we kind of referred to today and like do a deep dive on it, like crypto or or like moral philosophy or or shared reality or discourse norms or something like this. Um, but I do want to actually for us to do a little bit of the thing we're talking about together, kind of maybe as a as a conclusion. What do you think? Let's do it. So what we're saying here is part of what the future of humanity is going to be, is going to be. It's gonna take place in all these dimensions, like we talked about, especially these core three technology institutions and culture, because those are the ones we have the influence over. Part of that is gonna be the story we tell ourselves about where we've come from and where we're going and what's possible. And we're in a a world of like competing, you could call it narrative warfare, competing narratives. And some of these narratives, I think are better or worse than others. And yes, they're, they're stories and they, they're stories in it, in that sense of like a, you know, like a, like a scriptural story, right? It it has sort of like a moral lesson to it or a moral intention behind it. And you know, some of, some of these stories that I, just to kind of contrast what we're up to with some of these, like some of them are very depressing, right? Like they are very fatalistic. Like, like there's a, there's almost like a dark version of environmentalism, which is like, it's already too late. We've already destroyed the environment mm-hmm. irreparably, and basically, we're just going to go extinct. So we just spend the rest of our days as humanity just weeping over the fact that we committed suicide, right that's that's the best we can yeah. do. just join hands and accept our doom, right? Like I'm like that's it. I'm not I'm sort of caricaturing a certain style of story, but like that's not our story. That's not the shared reality that you and I want to weave here, right? like or the collapsitarians, there's a whole bunch of them out there. And I, I resonate a lot with long-termist thinking, You know, these ideas of like, oh, we there are definitely catastrophic risks. And some of these are ones that we could self-generate. In fact, some of the ones that you're talking about that kind of like collapse in the human dimension are ones we definitely need to worry about. Like the monetary system is kind of your example from today and from your the introductory material in your new book. But you know, that there's one version of that story, which is like, yes, and we're fucked, right? Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. We're, we're gonna do this and we're basically, you know, it's not gonna be environmental suicide. It's gonna be another one. We're gonna blow ourselves up with a nuclear disaster. We're gonna collapse the global monetary system and we're gonna go all the way back to- If we let,
1: if we let these guys do CRISPR in their garages, somebody's gonna let something out that changes the, the entire genome forever or whatever um, or lets out a super virus that, act, that is transmits quickly, but is as lethal as Ebola, whatever. Right. I mean, there's, th- there's a people who are really interested in this existential risk stuff. Yeah. And usually their answer, when you press them on how, well, what are you going to do about it? Is that they, they just get really author- authoritarian really quickly,
0: which I also yeah, think that's is another story, another yeah. existential threat. Exactly, so that we we should tease apart this exact thing, but but in in this world of like, what's the shared reality that we want to create, right? As a as a maybe a, a maybe we and I will find ways that we actually diverge from this, but I think one of the things that brought us together as friends and from me reading your book is there's there's a kind of optimism that we have, yeah. like not 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 a Pollyanna, like there are no existential risks, right? Like not just kind of like, oh, you know, progress just happens automatically. We don't need to worry about it. It's like, no, no, no. Like we, there, there are many ways, you know, entropy is is real, right? Like uh, you might say the like darker side of human nature, I think is real. We need to be concerned about these things and, you know, environmental issues are real and we need to worry about those too. There's a lot of things on that menu of global catastrophic risks or global existential risks. That do need to be attended to and mitigated if we're talking about like a long term future for humanity. But I think you know at the center of our story and i'll I'll just speak for myself at this point is like, you know humanity it, it, to the degree we even can think of ideas of like what is good or what is beautiful or what is aspirational, that is coming from the collective dialogue of humans. Like we are the moral agents in this story. And until we encounter another species somewhere that we can actually have ethical discourse with, we're it. So whatever is good is ultimately grounded in sort of what we say is good. And we're in a dialogue about like, how do we, how do we come together? with this? And, and how much do we need to come together? How much pluralism can we allow for there to be? And like, I think there's a, there's a way that you and I, uh, or speaking for myself, like I believe in the future of humanity. I believe that these risks are addressable, right? I, I believe, you know, like systemic fragility or the monetary system or you know, the legacy of racism or environmental catastrophe or biological weapons, you know, these things, we we must address them. Super intelligence, right? The super intelligence explosion, the big AI risk alignment problem people talk about. We need to address them. And I think it's possible that we can, that we should, and that we will. And at the very least, we need to believe that we could instead of giving up.
1: Right. On, on this we consider the shared reality woven the fundamental optimism i have um is is one i i share with you i think and and yet i say that as one who believes that we are in some respects and hopefully our listeners are operating in something of a of a bubble but a bubble that i hope can enlarge mm-hmm. where the intersubjective matrix of of Conversations and optimism and commitment to understanding both each other and understanding the world as it as it is presented to us, that we can begin to um can enlarge the circle of of, of shared reality yeah. in a way that is healthy and in a way that doesn't cause us to develop a sky castle. Uh, where no one can reach us, or we may never fall. Um, I find this in some to to be the case. Uh, the tr- tr- troublingly uh, with people who put met the word meta in front of things too too frequently. You know, <laughs> um, uh, you and I have talked about this offline. We'll 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 pick on the meta folks another day. But thinking meta is absolutely what we do, and it's important. But we also have to be able to broaden the circle of people. With whom we engage in an intersubjective agreement about the nature of reality the possibility of the future and of course uh, whether or not to be optimists which is an outlook that also drives our behavior and i think um, it uh it animates our discourse in positive ways so that when you and i talk about future possibilities And how we can make the world a better place to use you know the the silicon valley line uh from uh, from that great show sure we are not just talking out of our ass but we are connected not only with not connected not only with each other but with um some connection to how the world actually functions and i think a lot of what's going on now is uh in, in the in the information ecology, as uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger calls it, is a lot of pollution. And Mm -hmm. I think that pollution is because there's not a lot of cost associated with being wrong, Mm -hmm. or at least not a lot of cost associated with, there's no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's easy to be a part of a digital mob. It's easy to be a part of having groupthink if you're being rewarded generously within the group by some sort of identity. And sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. I find that artificial. Uh, you have to marry solidarity with reality. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a tough thing to do. Yep. Because one of the things we did learn from postmodernism is there's no standing outside of ourselves to check the nature of reality. We are always going to be subjective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and our phenomenology is always has a locus point. But through communication and through healthy discourse. We can create a positive future, and I'm optimistic about that.
0: Yeah. So you know, if this sounds good to you and you're listening, like I, please come back and join us for these discussions. And you know, hopefully we'll we'll find points of like contention between Max and me. You know, like I I imagine there's places where maybe you go a little more pessimistic, and I remain optimistic, or vice versa. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Or of you know, maybe there's a way that one of us leans more towards the you know in in a conservative way and one of us leans more towards a progressive way and maybe we will switch positions depending on the topic. But whatever it is that we do, we hope that you know we're open-minded and welcoming especially of like healthy debate and adding something to the discussion that is grounded in like our ability to converge in our differences in our dialogue, but also for it to map back to reality somehow and somewhere. And like the skin in the game issue, I think is one that is, is going to be interesting for us to kind of wrestle with ourselves. You know, like, are we just talking, right? Or are we, how are we putting skin in the game in, in our respective, you know, worlds and our domains? And how do we, how, what are we doing to help try to make that reality or at least run experiments to see like what can get some traction versus another thing?
1: Well, the first thing we're doing is we're opening ourselves up to you, the listener. And there's some skin in that, yes, um, so um, I, I can't thank you enough if you got this far in the podcast, uh, dear listener, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your spending this time with us and know that uh, Michael and I are interested in creating a lot more of these. Some of them will be more focused, some of these will be more restricted to a certain topic, and sometimes we'll get we'll, we'll fly around and imp- improvise, and I hope that you'll find both are good to your ear holes
0: right on join us again some point in the near future for another rendition of the social evolution podcast and thanks for joining